0: A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. They Flee From Me by Sir Thomas Wyatt They flee from me that sometime did me seek, With naked foot stalking in my chamber. I have seen them, gentle, tame, and meek, That now are wild, and do not remember That sometime they put themselves in danger, to take bread at my hand. And now they range, busily seeking, with a continual change. Thanked be fortune, it hath been otherwise twenty times better. But once in special, in thin array, after a pleasant guise, when her loose gown from her shoulders did fall and she me caught in her arms long and small, therewithal sweetly did me kiss, and softly said, Dear heart, how like you this! It was no dream, I lay broad waking, but all is turned, thorough my gentleness, into a strange fashion of forsaking, and I have leave to go of her goodness, and she also to use newfangleness. But since that I so kindly am served, I would fain know what she hath deserved. I reckon this is the first modern love poem in English. But before I try and persuade you of that, let me give you a bit of background about it. Sir Thomas Wyatt was a courtier and diplomat during the reign of Henry VIII in 16th century England. He was also the leading light among the poets of Henry VIII's court. Although, to be honest, that's not the biggest compliment. It wasn't exactly a golden age of poetry. But he was certainly a very accomplished poet, and also an influential figure in the development of English poetry. The court of Henry VIII, as I'm sure you can imagine, was a very glamorous, a very exciting, potentially a very rewarding, but also a very dangerous and uncertain place to find yourself. It was populated by the creme de la creme of English society. Lords and ladies, their sons and daughters, senior members of the church, as well as ambitious and upwardly mobile people such as Thomas Cromwell, who ended up being a key figure in the fate of Thomas Wyatt, in a way that's possibly relevant to this poem. The court Was a little bit like a Renaissance version of Celebrity Love Island, which I understand is a television game show where well known and attractive and single and successful people are put together in an enclosed space in a high stakes game of love. And what you end up with, of course, is various permutations of intrigue and courtship and romance and betrayal. And in the Tudor court, the stakes could not have been higher because winning or losing the game of love could also mean risking your social standing, your political power, or even your life. So that gives us a bit of the backdrop to the poem. And turning to the poem itself, as usual, I'm going to draw your attention to the verse form because poets use verse forms for various purposes. And one of those is to conjure the ghosts of other poets, to allude to their subject matter and themes, or sometimes to open up a dialogue with the other poet, or even start an argument with them. Now, some forms become so popular and so frequently used that it isn't even personal. So, for instance, if you find a 21st century poet writing a sonnet, So many people have written sonnets before that it's almost like stepping onto a public highway. And Thomas Wyatt was one of the first poets to use the sonnet in English. But he doesn't use the sonnet here. He uses rhyme royal. And this is an example of a form that's so specific that we can be pretty sure why it means us to be reminded of one poet, and even one specific poem in particular. And if you listen to episode 12 last month, then you will know exactly which poet and which poem I'm talking about. That's right, it's Geoffrey Chaucer and his long, tragic romantic tale, Troilus and Cressida, which was the original poem written in Rhyme Royal. And as I said at the time, Rhyme Royal is a seven-line stanza Written in a, a 10 ish syllable line that evolved into what we now call the iambic pentameter. And it rhymed AB, AB, B, C, C. So you've got alternating rhymes, A and B, at the beginning. Um, the letters stand for the words at the end of each line. And then you've got two couplets, BB and CC. C. So you go from openness to compression within an individual stanza. Now, you might be thinking, Really, Mark? Did Wyatt really mean us to think about Chaucer? And even if he did, what does it add to the poem? OK, I know it might sound like a small detail, but we do know that Wyatt, like any poet of the time, was a huge fan of Chaucer's work. To them, Chaucer was the undisputed master of English poetry the way most poets in later ages have thought about Shakespeare. So I have no doubt that he would have expected his readers to pick up on this reference, because he was certainly not writing for publication, not for the likes of you and me to read. That would have been seen as unspeakably vulgar for a 16th century nobleman. He was writing for educated lords and ladies at court most of whom would have known Wyatt personally and would have shared his enthusiasm for Chaucer. So, when they spotted the Rhyme Royal, it would have made an association, a kind of hyperlink in their minds, to the story of the double sorrow of Troilus, a young lover who was betrayed by an unfaithful woman, Chrysaida. And so the form would have been a perfect fit for Wyatt's subject... The pain of love and the pain of betrayal. To give you a modern analogy, a few years ago I remember seeing an ad on TV, or possibly in the cinema, and it featured this young chap sitting in the barber's chair with his face all lathered up for a shave. And the barber's got one of those old-fashioned Sweeney Todd-style razor blades. And he sticks the radio on. And what tune should come on the radio but... Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheels. And of course, if you've seen Quentin Tarantino's movie, Reservoir Dogs, you will immediately understand why the guy in the barber's chair starts to look very uncomfortable. And I seem to recall he runs out of the barber shop before the guy comes back. If you haven't seen Reservoir Dogs, I won't spoil it for you, but let's just say you do not want to be the chap sitting in the chair while somebody stands over you with a razor when that particular song is playing. OK, so that's the mood music of Wyatt's poem, which establishes the theme of love and betrayal. But unlike Chaucer's poem, Wyatt's is very short. There are only three stanzas, each of which shows us a different scene. And to me, This makes me think of a triptych which was a popular form in medieval and renaissance art. A set of three paintings or or sometimes stained glass panels or carved wooden panels where you would have three scenes or three related images designed to be viewed together. One of the most famous painted triptychs is the one by Hieronymus Bosch that's now known as the Garden of Earthly Delights. On the left-hand panel, Bosch has painted what looks like paradise. On the right-hand one, he's painted hell. And God knows what the middle one is supposed to represent. It's been interpreted as either a warning against the sins of the flesh or a celebration of sexual freedom, with possible alchemical, astrological, or devotional symbolism. But whatever it is, The point is that the three images are designed to be viewed together as a set, and the meaning of the piece is an emergent property of the interaction of the three images in the viewer's imagination. So what do we see when we look at Wyatt's triptych? Personally, I see three phases, or three aspects, of love. So in the first stanza... We are in the present, and the speaker of the poem is feeling very hurt and confused. They flee from me that sometime did me seek, With naked foot stalking in my chamber. I have seen them, gentle, tame, and meek, That now are wild, and do not remember That sometime they put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand. And now they range, busily seeking with a continual change. Now you could roughly paraphrase this as, what the hell happened to me? I used to be the centre of attention. I used to be the person that they all used to come running to. They used to put themselves in danger to get close to me. They used to stalk with naked foot in my chamber. And now they've gone and left me. And there's this beautifully judged metaphorical language which is very suggestive of deer or possibly birds or dogs, which are first tame and then wild, getting close enough to a man to take bread at his hand, then running away and roaming far from him. And it's fairly obvious that the poet is using these animals as a metaphor for the behaviour of humans, almost certainly young ladies stalking in his chamber with naked foot. And there are no prizes for guessing what's going on in this scenario. So we can see what he means when he talks about the danger that the ladies, many of whom, one assumes, were actual ladies were risking when they came to a man's private chamber. Even if they were single, this would have had severe consequences for their reputation and social standing. And in the context of the court and its constellation of political allegiances and romantic and marital relationships, it's safe to say that the lovers here are playing with fire. And the word danger didn't just mean the modern sense of being at risk. If you were in somebody's danger in the 16th century, it meant that you were in their power. So the speaker of the poem is looking back on a time when he was the top dog, the alpha male. And he's now bewildered by this loss of power, like a stag who's been deposed by a rival and who's licking his wounds away from the herd. We don't know why he lost his power or how it happened. But given that he's being shunned by all of them, not just a single woman, I'm picking up maybe some loss of political power or favour that might make him a less attractive proposition, and less worth taking a risk for. Then in the next stanza, the central panel of the triptych, he looks back at the way things used to be thank be fortune, it hath been otherwise twenty times better. But once in special, in thin array, after a pleasant guise, When her loose gown from her shoulders did fall, And she me caught in her arms long and small, Therewithal sweetly did me kiss, and softly said, Dear heart, how like you this? If ever there was a rhetorical question in English poetry, this is it. I mean, there is absolutely no doubt how much he liked that. And this is an incredibly vivid and surprisingly fresh and immediate description. Now, maybe it's surprising to us because it seems so vivid for a poem that's nearly 500 years old. To Wyatt's first readers, however, it would have been surprising and even shocking for a different reason. So he says, thanks be fortune, it hath been otherwise 20 times better. Which doesn't mean that the past was 20 times better than the present. It means that there were more than 20 times when things were otherwise different to the way they are now. So in modern parlance, he's been around a bit. And most of these encounters are evidently not worth recalling in detail, but once in special, one special occasion stands out in his memory. And then he gives us this unforgettable glimpse of this special woman in thin array after a pleasant guise, in a thin gown that was beautiful to look at, catching him in her arms long and small, long and slender, and giving him that kiss and asking the question that had no need of an answer. And what would have been shocking for his first readers wouldn't have been the sexual content itself, but the fact that he doesn't disguise it in the traditional way that you would encode such encounters in courtly love poetry, which would be to suggest that it all just happened in a dream. There's certainly a dreamlike quality to the whole poem, but he actually says explicitly in the final stanza, It was no dream. I lay broad waking. In other words, he's saying this actually happened. And that would have been shocking for his contemporaries because the convention of courtly love, of course, was that the lady was considered to be chaste and unattainable and untroubled by the base passions that the male lover might have had. And so any kind of erotic activity was generally displaced into dreams and fantasies. So saying this actually happened, would have placed him and the lady in considerable danger if it ever became known who she was. And this passage is loosely based on an episode from the Roman poet Ovid's Amores. So if he was challenged, I guess he could have claimed he was just translating a classical poem. But really, that is the tiniest and flimsiest of fig leaves. Because there's such vividness and immediacy about this description that it leaves me in no doubt that this really happened, that two people did meet like this, and she did throw her arms around his neck and say those words or something very close to them. And that moment is preserved in this poem. In Philip Larkin's poem, Lines on a Young Lady's Photograph Album, He writes about the ability of photography to capture a moment in time. And he says that the camera overwhelmingly persuades that this was a real girl in a real place. And to me, this is exactly what Wyatt's poem does. It persuades me, at least, that this was a real woman, a real event, and a real love. And this is why I say that this is the first modern love poem in English. Because we have a sense here of a poet wanting to preserve an actual experience, something that happened to him that was so powerful and so important that he didn't want to let it go. He wanted to preserve it in poetry, even if it was dangerous to do so. Now, I can't prove this really happened. It's down to the sheer force of the poetry. But in terms of its modernity, for instance, to me this comes across as much more modern than Shakespeare's sonnets, even though they were written over 50 years later. You know, the sonnets give us an awful lot of Shakespeare's thoughts and feelings about the young man or men or the lady or ladies that he was writing about, but we never get anything like this glimpse of a moment in time with them of how they looked on one particular day, or something they did at one particular moment, or any reported speech of theirs that's as memorable and moving as this. So, that's my case for the first modern love poem in English. But I am open to persuasion, so if you, dear listener, can think of another contender for that title, then please let me know. So this poem was probably written in the 1530s. So if you can think of an earlier poem or even a slightly later poem that you think is even more modern than this one in the way it treats romantic love, then please send me a message via the website a mouthful of contact or indeed on Twitter at a mouthful of air And if I'm remotely convinced by your choice and your reasons why, I will consider your suggestion for a future episode and obviously credit you appropriately. Okay, back to Thomas Wyatt and the third stanza, the third panel in his Triptych of Love. It was no dream, I lay broad waking, But all is turned, Thar a my gentleness "'into a strange fashion of forsaking, "'and I have leave to go of her goodness, "'and she also to use newfangleness. "'But since that I so kindly am served, "'I would fain know what she hath deserved.' So we are back to the present again, but now the hurt and confusion have been replaced by bitterness and resentment. There's a real biting sarcasm here that's typical of the jilted lover when he says, I have leave to go of her goodness, suggesting that she thinks she's better than he is. And he's also being deeply ironic when he says, Since that I so kindly am served... I would fain know what she hath deserved. It's a brilliantly nasty final couplet, because he clearly feels that she has been unkind. And if we look at the whole triptych again and lay the three stanzas side by side, I think it's likely that as readers, we find our sympathy with the speaker of the poem getting stronger or weaker with each shift of perspective. In stanza one, I think we feel a lot of empathy and even pity for his suffering. In stanza two, we find ourselves caught up in the joy of the memory, maybe even recalling our own memories of romantic bliss. But by the final stanza, I think he's largely lost our sympathy because he's turned into a very mean and petty person. You know, in that central stanza, We really feel that he's been enlarged and even transfigured by love. But at the end, the ego is back with full force, and it's not a pretty sight. If we shift the metaphor slightly, instead of a painted triptych, we could think of this poem as an old-fashioned mirror with a central pane and two side panels so that you can see yourself from different angles. And we're almost comfortable gazing at the central mirror with the familiar face-on view, particularly after we've got dressed up and made up, seeing ourselves the way we'd like to be seen. But the other two panels in this mirror are tilted, and they show us angles that we're not so used to seeing, but maybe other people around us are more familiar with. And one of them shows our pain and our vulnerability, which is hard to look at, but actually easier than the final panel, which shows us pettiness and nastiness and keeping scores and wanting to get even with someone. And we like to think that the person in that final panel, that final stanza, has nothing to do with us. But if we're honest, I think we can all recognize something of the feelings in that final stanza, even if we've hopefully only experienced them fleetingly. And yet, I'm going to return to a theme I've spoken about in relation to several other poems on this podcast, including Shakespeare's Sonnet 60 and Yeats's poem, He Thinks of Those Who Have Spoken Evil of His Beloved, and something I also think is true of Troilus and Cressida. Just because a poem or a story or even a human life has an unhappy ending that doesn't invalidate the glimpses of joy and bliss and love we encounter in the course of the story. And one of the things I think poetry can do more powerfully than more linear storytelling forms like novels or plays or movies, let alone history and biography, is to preserve and maintain and position that joy and that love as central to its subject. Because I think the abiding image that we take from this poem is the radiance of that central stanza. And yes, it is framed by pain and grief and bitterness. But I think most of us would agree that a life without joy and love would be a mistake. And if pain and grief is part of the deal, then it's a price worth paying. Okay, everything I've said so far about this poem is based on what we can deduce or infer from the poem itself, and some pretty uncontroversial knowledge about the historical context of Wyatt's life and circumstances. And normally I would stop here because I'm generally not interested in biographical, gossipy readings of poems. And yet, I Read a very interesting biography of Thomas Wyatt, Graven with Diamonds by Nicola Schulman, where she argues that his poems, like all of the poetry at Henry VIII's court, were part of an elaborate and dangerous game played by the inner circle of the court, with Wyatt as the ringleader. She says that the poems were written for the eyes and ears of the select few lords and ladies in this inner circle. And if you were in the know, then you knew who and what the poems were about, and this unlocked a new dimension to their meaning. So a lot of the time when we don't really get much from these poems, that's because they don't make complete sense or perform their intended function outside of this original context. Which means that in Wyatt's case, we need to take account of this social context and the gossipy details in order to unlock the true meaning of his poems. So, let's imagine that we can slip behind the arras, the tapestry hung on the walls, in one of the Tudor palaces in the 16th century, and walk along a secret passageway. And maybe if we are quiet and we listen carefully, we may glimpse or overhear something of the real situation behind this poem. And in this case, the gossip and rumour were actually pretty strong. So strong, in fact, that they landed Thomas Wyatt in the Tower of London under threat of execution. So, the rumour is that Wyatt had an affair with Anne Boleyn. That's right the Anne Boleyn who married Henry VIII. And the affair happened either before or even after her marriage to Henry. And in 1536, Wyatt was imprisoned alongside five other men accused of adultery with Anne. So this rumour has led to this poem being interpreted as a coded reference to Wyatt's affair with Anne. Well. If that's true, then the irony of the poem deepens because, as we've seen, Wyatt is being ironic when he complains how kindly he had been served and wonders what she hath deserved. But the deeper irony is that Anne Boleyn ended up receiving a far worse fate than Thomas Wyatt. I mean, here he is whinging about being rejected in love, but she had her head cut off. He was threatened with execution, but while Anne and the other men were sentenced to death, he got off scot-free. And it's a little bit of a mystery why he was released. It was probably through the intervention of Thomas Cromwell, maybe because of a family connection, or maybe because Cromwell thought of Wyatt as useful, and he wanted to have him in his debt going forward. And there are some versions of the story that even say Wyatt witnessed Anne's execution from the window of his cell. It sounds a bit improbable, a bit Hollywood, but another poem attributed to Wyatt contains these lines. The bell tower showed me such sight that in my head sticks day and night. So he's saying he saw something from the Bell Tower, which was the part of the Tower of London where he was imprisoned, and he never forgot it. And I think seeing your beloved beheaded with a sword would definitely be the kind of sight that would stick in your head day and night. Okay, I am aware there are an awful lot of conjectures stacked on top of each other here. but. If Thomas Wyatt was in love with Anne Boleyn and if he did have an affair with her and if They Flee From Me is about Anne and actually whether or not he actually saw her executed he would certainly have been told about it very shortly afterwards. And so in this scenario I can't help wondering whether these lines came back to haunt Wyatt when he learned Anne's fate. But since that I so kindly am served, I would fain know what she hath deserved. Because in the event, he was served far more kindly than her. And when he came to know what happened to her, he probably wished he hadn't. And you'd have to have a heart of stone to think that Anne got what she deserved. They Flee From Me by Sir Thomas Wyatt. They flee from me that sometime did me seek, with naked foot stalking in my chamber. I have seen them, gentle, tame, and meek, that now are wild, and do not remember that sometime they put themselves in danger, To take bread at my hand. And now they range, Busily seeking, With a continual change. Thanked be fortune, It hath been otherwise, Twenty times better. But once in special, In thin array, After a pleasant guise, When her loose gown From her shoulders did fall and she me caught in her arms long and small, therewithal sweetly did me kiss, and softly said, Dear heart, how like you this! It was no dream, I lay broad waking, but all is turned, thorough my gentleness, into a strange fashion of forsaking, and I have leave to go of her goodness, and she also to use newfangledness. But since that I so kindly am served, I would fain know what she hath deserved. Sir Thomas Wyatt was a courtier, diplomat and poet who was born in 1503 and died in 1542. His father was a trusted advisor to the Tudor kings Henry VII and Henry VIII and Thomas followed his father into service at court. He was entrusted with many diplomatic missions to the courts of Europe. He benefited from the patronage of Thomas Cromwell but when Cromwell fell from favour in 1541, Wyatt was briefly arrested for treason. He managed to regain the King's Trust and was on a diplomatic errand for Henry when he died of a fever. Wyatt's poems were circulated during his lifetime among his private circle, but not published until after his death. He was an influential poet who experimented with European verse forms and is credited with introducing the sonnet to English poetry. A mouthful of air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it, or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating, or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler, sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.